Wow. Service really flew by today. I thought I was going to have more time <laughs> before coming up. Um, so before I start, I just want to say thank you to uh, Daniel and Timothy for allowing me this opportunity um, to preach. And thank you also for being willing to um, take me on as an intern uh, shortly to the Presbyterian, make sure they give the final thumbs up and be good to go. Um, I'm also thankful that my kids left. Um, no, I'm we're talking about anger today, and I don't want my kids yelling at me or coming up here saying, Dad, that's you. You yell at us. You're the angry one, <laughs> which is probably true. Um, but when I first started thinking about this topic, it, it seemed kind of strange to me. Why would anger be included uh, in a list of seven deadly sins? After all, we, we do live in a fallen world, a world where life is hard and injustice is a reality. It would seem that if one thing would be allowed, it would be anger. Young men are shot in the streets, young children abused. Uh, we just heard, and Timothy prayed for, the incident at Oregon. You see ISIS running wild, killing um, our Christian brothers and sisters and others as well. If there was anything that should be allowed, it should be anger. After all, how can we avoid being angry? Or should we even avoid being angry? We see that God gets angry. We see examples of Jesus getting angry and, and flipping over tables and running out money changers from the temple. So how can anger be sinful? I think that the answer is that not all anger is sin. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26 commands us to be angry but not to sin. So I really want to be careful today and, and not downplay the fact that bad things happen, right? That we do suffer. Um, and that there aren't events that we shouldn't get angry about. Um, I think to not get angry about certain things would be a sin in and of itself. But as we begin to look at this idea, I want to suggest that anger in itself is not always a problem, but it's our response to it that becomes part of the problem. So for an example of, of good anger, in the year 1951, there was a young woman by the name of Barbara Rose Johns. She grew up about 200 miles north of here in a town called Farmville, Virginia. And one day, after being tired of all of the issues that came with going to a segregated school, she decided to lead a walkout of her Moton area high school. She was angry because her parents' tax dollars were being taken to fund the white new school that was being built while her school with the tar paper roof, which is the name of the book, um, would become too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter. When it rained, they would get leaked on. Uh, the old textbooks, right? And so for her, and her response to that, she let a walkout, took the students. Her case would later become part of Brown v. Board of Education, uh, 1954 Supreme Court decision, which would outlaw segregation, right? That's an example of a, of a good type of anger. It's an anger that seeks to build up, an anger that seeks to destroy injustice, right? And that's not the anger we want to talk about today, right? That's not the anger that Paul commands us to have. But there's another type which seeks to defend ourselves, right? Which seeks to defend our pride 
When life simply doesn't go the way we want it to go, it's a response that we often have to get angry. An example of that would come a year later in my favorite book, if you're at City Group, I mentioned this the other day with us, uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, not to be confused with H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man. Um, you laugh, but I actually had a guy who that happened to, he said, Justin, give me a good book about the Civil Rights Movement. I said, Invisible Man. He said, what does being invisible and having a time, what does that have to do with the Civil Rights Movement? I said, wrong book. Um, but in that book, in the very opening scene of that book, the unnamed protagonist finds himself walking down the street and tired of a lifetime of injustice, a lifetime of, of simply being stepped on and, and passed over. He takes his anger out on just some random guy who happened to bump into him. And as he's there, and the, as the scene has it in the book, he's beating him and he's kicking him and he's, and he's ready to take out his knife and slit his throat. And he realizes that this man is not the object of his anger. He's just some guy who happens to be passing by. This is the type of anger that we're talking about today. It's the type of anger that, as Rebecca Young states in her book, Glittering Vices, turns vicious, fights for its own selfish cause and not for justice. So let's take a closer look at this type of anger by reading Genesis 4, 1 through 8, and taking a look at the life of Cain and Abel. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain... And his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Word of the Lord. Would you please have a seat? We'll pray. Um, Father, as we enter into this time, I ask that you would uh, send the power that makes preaching easy. I have prepared, but I need your power to preach. Without you, uh, this is just a self-help talk uh, that does not bring change, but with you, there comes life. And so, Father, I'm asking that you would move me out of the way, that people would hear your word um, and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Eve gives birth to Cain, and she is understandably overjoyed. There's something special about the first child. Even though we as parents don't like to say we have favorites, there's still something very special about the first one. Perhaps it's simply that we don't know any better as first-time parents. Whatever the case, the first child, fairly or not, carries on in the hopes and dreams of, of the parents. And it was no different for Eve and Cain. Look at the text. When Cain is born, Eve exclaims that she has gotten a man with the help of the Lord. When Abel is born, there's not a mention of anything except that he's born. 
It's clear from the text that great things are expected from Cain. Most commentators, and I agree with them, uh, believe that Eve hopes that Cain is a child promised in Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God promises to Eve a child that would carry with him the hopes of mankind. He's going to be the one who undoes the fall and destroys evil. High hopes to be placed on a young man. I wondered as I was writing the sermon what life must have been like for Cain to have all those expectations placed upon him. He's the older brother, the one who is supposed to lead and guide, the one who his parents will depend on later in life. I wonder if he was constantly told how wonderful he was. Abel, on the other hand, is just Abel. There's no fanfare over his birth. In fact, in the narrative, he's just a bit player. There appears to be nothing special about him at all. One day, the brothers go before the Lord to present their offerings. As the text says, Cain brings fruit. Abel brings the first of his his flock. There's nothing shocking about this. After all, Cain is a farmer and Abel is a keeper of sheep. When their offerings are presented to the Lord, Abel's offering is accepted. And Cain's offering, the Lord had no regard for. Why didn't the Lord accept Cain's offering? The short answer, I don't know. Um, Perhaps Cain should have brought sheep as well. Perhaps um, he didn't bring the best of his offering. Perhaps he had done nothing wrong. Whatever the case may be, we see that Cain is angry. We see that his face fell. He was hurt, destroyed. The young man used to being first, the favorite son, if if he was in high school today, he probably voted most likely to succeed, prom king. The son who overshadowed his brother Abel was not chosen by God, but Abel was. Like Cain, we often become angry when life does not meet our expectations. It is when we feel that everyone around us, including God, is against us. We have no hope. We don't think there's anyone to appeal to and no way to, to handle the pressure that we now find ourselves in. We may not want to confess this, so let's let Cain do it for us. He is angry at God, not Abel. Abel is just there, like he is for the rest of the story. Cain's issue is that he believes that God is unjust and unfair. When we are really being honest with ourselves, we must admit that what Cain is feeling is what we oftentimes feel as well. When the promotion at work doesn't happen despite our best efforts, when we don't get the grade on the paper or the projects uh, we think we deserve, when we get sick at young ages, um, when somebody in our family who was close to us and, and meant everything dies, when everyone else's life seems to be working out for them, and despite everything we do, praying, fasting, reading the word, nothing works for us. Lord, we say, you see what other people are doing, how they are living, and I have to go through this? What do we do when we come to the realization that life is just often unfair? After we think that life just shouldn't be this way, when everything is out of control, we seek to get back any sense of order. This is exactly what Cain does. This is why this type of rage is so dangerous. It lashes out, sometimes in violent outbreaks and oftentimes through silent behavior. Let's be clear that not every single time we, do we experience rage? Are we going to go out and, and beat up the person who looks at us or yell? Sometimes it's going to be a retreat, right? Fight or flight. Um, 
And so we were doing well in church group. We got mad. We disappear. We were doing well uh, in our marriage. Something happened. And all of a sudden, as, as spouse, we retreat from the other one. We become silent. For Cain, the object of his rage is his brother. After all, it does, it's not any good to be angry at God. What can Cain do to him? But his brother is a different story. We were warned by Paul not to let the sun go down on our anger. Because when we do so, we give place to the devil. Peter tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can destroy. Cain's anger festers until one day he can no longer contain it. This is the result of unrighteous anger. For righteous anger looks to heal. Unrighteous anger only looks to destroy. He kills his brother. We may not go that far, but that's not because we are better than Cain was. Make no mistake about it, our anger destroys those around us. Our rage becomes like a wildfire that burns out of control. How often have you yelled at your children because of a situation at work? How often do small incidents become so much longer, larger than they should have ever been? So what can we do about this? What's the answer? Jesus tells us that the answer to this type of rage and anger is meekness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to be clear, meekness does not mean weakness, but it is a state of being where the concerns of others are put before our own. Meekness does not mean that we don't get angry. It doesn't mean that we don't care when things are, are done to us. But meekness has as its primary response love of neighbor. We are told that the two great commandments are love of God and love of neighbor. Sinful anger has at, at its heart neither. It is the love of our desires over and above that of our neighbors. Meekness says that we can indeed trust God in his ways. Cain did not trust that God was just. When we feel rage, we are also saying that God is not just. Jesus is then our perfect example of what it means to be meek. Think about it this way. The creator of the world, who could in a moment just destroy it, right, allowed the world to be unjust to him. The author of Hebrews directs us to consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. To be meek is to be humble. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, states that humility or meekness does not have to put what is due oneself at the center of attention. It does not have to hold the reins of the universe. It responds instead from a heart that acknowledges and trusts the mysterious combination of justice and mercy that is God's way of setting things right. Humility counters a prideful impulse, impulse excuse me, to take over full control when things don't go our way, as well as a yielding assertion assertion of one's own will and expectation of honor from others that lies behind so many occasions for wrath, end quote. But see, that's exactly what the cross is. It's a mysterious combination of both justice and mercy. The cross is the place where Psalm 85 tells us steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. We can trust in, in God. The cross is the proof Unlike Cain, who refused to yield to the just judgment of God, we have seen through the actions of Christ that God is indeed just and fair. Justice will be done. The cross promises this to us. It says that the triune God cares so much about injustice that the second person of the Trinity would take on human flesh 
and set to rights all the wrongs of the world. All the hopes that Eve placed on Cain are fulfilled in and by Christ. He will and has crushed the head of the serpent, just as has been and will be done. Even though life is hard and at times unfair and rage and anger seem to be the only way that we have to live in this world, we can remember this promise, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One of the strengths of this series, and I think Daniel highlights this often, is that he gives practical applications uh, at the end of each. So we did it with envy and we did it with greed that can build in these rhythms in our lives to help rid us of those, those vices, right? To help really understand them and to... Um, develop an attitude where they don't rule in our lives. So we're going to try to do the same thing here. So how do we develop these healthy attitudes that, that mitigate against unrighteous rage? Rebecca DeYoung, again, from her book, Glittering Devices, gives three examples, which I think are pretty good. The first one, she says, is keep a journal, right? Simply write down incidents during the week where anger has taken control, when we got angry, um, to write down each one of those and to reflect on it and to really ask and to give each incident a rating, right? I guess from one to 10, one, ah, wasn't so bad, 10, oops, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty rough. 10 might not be oops, but you understand. Um, and then to review it weekly and ask, and ask the question, how often was I angry? Right? Reflect upon why was I angry? Were my actions just or unjust? And try to do that in a critical way that doesn't seek to simply justify ourselves. That's why I don't keep a journal, but I kept it. So of course I had a right to be angry, but don't do that. The second one is simply develop a sense of humor. If we can laugh at ourselves, even in the midst of, of others um, piling insults upon ourselves, we have actually getting able to develop the ability to step outside of the situation, right? So when my daughter looked at me and said, Dad, you look like a dork this morning, I said, well, of course. I'm trying to look like Roger Thomas. You guys are too young. Roger Thomas was a character on uh, What's Happening. He had the big glasses. Great show. <laughs> look it up when you go home. That's what the glasses are for. Um, but no, seriously, develop a sense of humor, right? If we can laugh at ourselves then we're not taking ourselves too seriously. Those moments of, of the world coming against us where we think that things are unjust and unfair, we can really take a step back and see if it's true. Finally, anger not only is an emotional response, but it also carries with it a physical response. So these are simple things that you can do. Make sure you get enough rest, right? If you're tired, if you're stressed, if you've had a hard day at work, before coming home, take a minute to be able to deal with those things before you bring it into the house. Um, listen to some calming music. Don't listen to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Exercise to burn off tension um, and just find resources that would enable you to calm down. At the end of the day, I would say this, that Paul's words in Ephesians 4.26 ring true to us that we are to be angry, that we are to acknowledge injustice, that we are to fight the good fight um, based upon what Christ has said, 
to set these things right, right? We're not in a world where we're going to disappear and hide from it. And at the same time, do not sin. Let's pray.